Hi, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and welcome to another episode of the Silmarillion Seminar. Hello, this is Jordan Brown, High King of the Noldor and proud Silmarillionaire. In this week's episode, we discuss Chapter 9 of The Flight of the Noldor, or Don't Let the Door Hit You on the Way Out, Feanor. Topics range from the introduction of the Hell Caraxa, the Doom of Mandos, the motives and impulses of Feanor, Fingolfin, and the whole Noldor clan to leave Valinor, a brief foray back into Ungoliant, and plenty of Morgoth to go around. This is Feanor's big moment, and we send him out of Valinor properly by questioning his every move, although we do see some Noldor apologists sneak in near the end. We start tonight because, you know, why wouldn't we? With the question, what if Mandos sounded like Droopy Dog? You know what? Not the first. Okay, good evening, everybody. Okay, well, let's get straight into things here this evening, because uh, some of you have already noted this is a long and very weighty chapter. Um, I saw uh, some, yeah, Jordan suggested maybe we'd need two weeks on this chapter. I'm not sure we could do it in three weeks, but uh, let's, let's see what we can get through here tonight. Um, let's see, uh, see, uh, there's a bunch of, uh, Feanor-related topics, and certainly there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of Feanor to talk about here in this chapter. This is Feanor's big moment. Not a great one. Not a good one at all. But his big one, anyway. Um, but before that, uh, Joe, let's, let's start off with your Nienna question, uh, before we get, uh, too, uh, too enmeshed in talking about Feanor. Alright, I just, uh... I found it interesting that uh, when Nina grieves, it seems that there uh, comes healing, and it says that she washed away the defilements of Ungoliant with her tears. It doesn't really heal the trees, but it kind of helps dull everything. And then um, it also seems that uh, Feanor shows his grief for his father, kind of, in a more rebellious manner, and it kind of brings about some not-as-good things. And um, I'm wondering, uh, could they do different things because Nina was grieving unselfishly and more for everything and everyone, but Feanor was being much more self-oriented and focusing on his uh, grief for losing the Silmarils and uh, his father? Yeah, I mean, it's that is a really interesting parallel. That is the grief of Nienna, um, which, you know, she, she's sort of the kind of obvious, uh, well, I guess she's not a spokesperson, technically. What is she? Like a, what, like a weeps person? I don't know. Anyway, she's the one who's weeping on behalf of all of the Valar and everybody. Um, and I love that image from later on where you've got the Valar there in Valmar and, and the Maiar and the Vanyar are standing with them weeping. Um, but anyway, um, so there's Nienna, and she's weeping for everybody, but the juxtaposition, as you say, with Feanor, who's weeping, um, and, uh, and, you know, his his own mourning for the death of his father and for the rape of the Silmarils, um, uh, Tolkien using the word rape in its old sense there, that is basically kidnapping or the, the, the taking away. Um, and uh, anyway, so... Um, I think that that idea of selfish grief um, is an interesting one, but it's kind of a tricky one. Because on the one hand, his weeping for his father is one of the only things that he does which is sort of commended uh, by the narrator in this in this passage, um, in this whole chapter, really. Um, you know, when he says on page 79, For his father was dearer to him than the lights of Valinor or the peerless works of his hands, and who among sons of elves or of men have held their fathers of greater worth? And uh, one is almost tempted 
to sort of say, well, like, especially since it's fan art, I mean, given what we know he thinks about the peerless works of his own hands, um, then, well, yeah, that's saying a lot to say that he loved his dad even more. Um, so I'm not sure that it's quite exactly fair to say that his grief is selfish, because there I don't think it is. At least not entirely. He's weeping for the Silmarils, and that's, in a sense, a kind of a tainted grief um, that is tainted with his own pride as well. But not necessarily the grief for his father, but his response to that grief. That's a different story. That is, you know, what when next we see Feanor, he is coming into Tyrion, breaking the, the exile of Manwë and calling for vengeance. Um, and that's harder. I mean, like that, that, that response, that is, that is an arrogant response. He's not responding well to his grief um, at all. Um, but I, I mean, I think that that juxtaposition between him and Nienna there is is uh, is really important. Um, we'll come back to Nienna again next week. Uh, Joe, you're certainly right that her grief brings healing, and we'll see. Although she does, she cleanses she cleanses the trees of the poison of Ungoliant, she's not able to restore them. Um, but she is going to be instrumental uh, in helping bring forth the sun and the moon. So when we get to there, we'll see that, um, and that's uh, that's interesting. Um, okay, let's see, Mike, you had a couple simple questions, a, a, a few simple words, which I think is really, uh, um, I'd, I'd be happy to clear those up. Uh, uh, the first one was, was perforce, which just means sort of, uh, uh, by force, um, uh, cousin means deceived, uh, and tithe just means one-tenth. Um, so only a tithe of them remained, so only about 10% of the Noldor remained back home in Tyrion. 90% of them leave uh, with Feanor. Though, of course, we should point out, many of them, that is, Finarfin and his, and many of his followers, do turn back and come, and I think they were not in the original tithe. So at the end of the day, it's less than 90% of the Noldor who end up um, taking off with Feanor and Fingolfin separately, one by sea and one by land. So, so that's what that's what tithe means there. Um, now let's see. Let's talk about. Let's go ahead and talk about Feanor. Um, let's see, Chris, you wanted to talk about Feanor's persuasiveness. Yeah, um, it just occurs to me. It's a very. It's. I use the word persuasiveness there, but it's obviously much more than that. It's all, it's like an exercise of of personal power of some kind, and I think it's an it's an interesting trait. For anybody to have, whether they be um, of the Ainur or of the children of uh, uh, of Iluvatar, I guess other characters we've seen it in are Saruman. I guess he's another one that has uh, a power of voice like that, and I, I just find it an, an interesting power. I guess I'm not sure what point I have to make, but it, do you agree that it's it's not just persuasiveness? It's a it's a uh, an, an exercise of power in some fashion. Yes, yes. Um, I mean, we do see some evidence of, like, good old-fashioned persuasion. Um, that is, uh, like, on the top of page 84, when we have uh, Galadriel's response, but the words of Feanor concerning Middle-earth had kindled in her heart. That sort of right. sounds... That, that's not just him dominating her will. Um, you know, his words have you know, led her to think of these things which she really likes, so she's responding to his words. And similarly... So in she that seems like she's not taken by the, the power that he's throwing at them, but but by the concepts. She's think you know, ties in with her desires. 
Right, exactly, exactly. And similarly, um, just a couple lines down in that same paragraph, of like mind with Goadriel was Fingon, Fingolfin's son, being moved also by Feanor's words, although he loved him little. So he's he's moved, right? So that right. again, I think, is, you know, we see them being convinced. Um and, you know, perhaps to some extent, again, even in the next paragraph, at length, after long debate, Feanor prevailed in the greater part of the Noldor that, asse that there assembled, he set aflame with the desire of new things in strange countries. Um, that, I think, is uh, sort of starting to move in a stronger direction there. That is, you know, he is setting them aflame with desire. Um, not and again, I think I think we can see something different here between that and uh, the words of Feanor kindling in Goadriel's heart. Um, I think mainly because of the the clause that immediately comes after. For she yearned to see the wide unguarded lands. That is, there's something already. There's already a desire in her heart which resonates with this. You know, so her. You know, to sort I of. I think it's kind of. Go ahead. I just think it's kind of in the, in the nature of the Noldor themselves that. Um, they want, they're doers, and so I can imagine even if all this didn't happen, that eventually they'd say, you know what, we want to do something else, let's, let's go. So I think I'm going to guess that within the Noldor psyche itself, it's Theonor's words and the idea of leaving, I think that it probably appeals at some level to most of them because they, I think as a people, want to be out doing things. They're makers, so they're, right. they're, they're stranded in, in uh, Valinor, even though they don't really perceive it as being stranded, but I can see them wanting to move, move out regardless of what this happened eventually. Yes, there's a really telling moment uh, when they refer to Middle-earth as home uh, in this, you know, let us go home, um, which I think does really speak to that and to the trend that we've, you know, sort of the, the, the theme, which I think is a pretty subtle theme and you can miss it pretty easily, um, but that is the... The Valar kind of screwed up in inviting the elves to Valinor in the first place theme, um, which, uh, you know, which I think, you know, definitely does come into play here again, you know, that we can see that there is the desire of the Noldor to leave is not entirely and in all ways corrupt. Um, you know, as you say, that th there are ways in which they, Feanor's words are wrong in spirit, but they're not entirely inaccurate. The Noldor are, in fact, literally hemmed in a narrow place, as he says. Now, you know, they're not being held prisoners, and they're not thralls, and, and you know, when he talks about the cage of the Valar and stuff, I mean, that's unfair. But they were, they were meant to be, I mean, they seem to be meant to be with their skills of, of, of making, to be blessing all of Arda. And they're not. They just have their little city and their little valley in the mountains of Valinor. And that's, so yeah, I mean, I think that there is something, there is something at least not bad about their desire to go back. But, but at the same time, all the way through, um, it is, it is, con it is continually shot through here to a greater or lesser extent with negative desires, with corrupt desires. Um, you know, Fingon's desire to return, well, that seems to be okay, but a little bit corrupted. Um, uh, Goadriel's even more corrupted. I mean, she she wants to uh, rule a realm at her own will. She seems to desire mastery. That's a little questionable. But yeah, I'd say her, of, of all of them, her motivations are as much suspect as anybody. I mean, other than Fionor and his sons, but her her, I mean, she wants things to order things in her own way, and uh, that's that's a little bit uh, tainted as far as uh, motivation goes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, no, I think uh, I, I think that it's, and that's 
this is a moment which is almost never going to come up again. I mean, Goadriel is a very minor player in the Silmarillion. She'll come up again a couple of times. We'll meet her again. Um, but she's not going to do very She's never going to do very much. But the moments when she does come up, and especially this one, this is the absolute number one moment for Goadriel, prior to the business about the Third Age, of course, the very last section of the book. But prior to that, um, this is the moment, the most important Goadriel moment. And the best thing to do with this moment is just kind of file that away. Um, if you read this sentence about Goadriel and the Silmarillion, the whole scene with Goadriel and Frodo makes a lot more sense. I'm just going to refer to that because that whole conversation she has with Frodo is put in a completely different context when you, when you think back to this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is, she is finally being, you know, and this this is why she says, I passed the test. You know, this is the final moment when she is then, only then, when she refuses to take the ring of power, is she finally, at last, completely turning her back on this moment. Yeah, you know, the, 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 the thing that she did way back before they left Tyrion, right here in this moment, she is now finally, for the final, for the, for, for the first time, completely putting that desire for mastery behind her. Because she had the opportunity, and she makes the choice not to. And that's why she immediately links it. I mean, her words there, you know, I passed the test. I shall, I shall diminish and go into the West and remain Goadriel. Um, and those are like all three of those things. Um, all three, all three of those statements are significant. She shall diminish. That is, she's not going to seek her own elevation. She's not going to try to make more. She's going to, to submit. She's going to be humble. She's going to submit to becoming less and not try to become more as she wants to become more. She's going to be able to go into the West. She wasn't permitted to go into the West before. Now she's going to be able to go into the West because she's passed the test. The, the, the Valar will now take her back. Um, and she'll remain Goadriel. Um, you know, she she knows what happens to people who actually are overcome by the desire for mastery. I mean, e even if she had only seen it in Feanor, she would know what happened. I mean, she wasn't there when Feanor, you know, meets his end. The last she saw, you know, Feanor, he was like on the deck of a white swan ship cackling maniacally as he sails off into the distance. But still, I mean, even there, she's already seen uh, him and how he has become corrupt. Um she, you know, she's going to remain Goadriel. So, so anyway, yeah, that, that's uh, that's sort of a huge thing. And I'm glad we brought that up. There's not too much more to say about Goadriel because, again, right. she only gets the one sentence. Um, but it is it is noteworthy. And then, of course, Feanor is the greatest example of someone whose desire to go back has been is sort of thoroughly corrupted. But, I, but I, you know, when I say thoroughly corrupted, I don't mean 100% evil, just as his statements are not completely inaccurate. Um, right. So, and and this is, this is you know... Pride leading to the... The pride leading to the oath, then yeah. the, after the oath, I mean, everything he does is tainted. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think we, when you want to see, we, you know, we talked last time when we were looking at Ungoliant, especially at, you know, the nature of evil as Tolkien depicts it in his books. And I, you know, and I still say Ungoliant and her end is described in the beginning of this chapter. I mean, again, she is the paradigm of evil. Um, and I can't believe in all the things that people have suggested they want to talk about, you know, after, would, are we satisfied? Are we, are we glutted with Ungoliant from last week? No one has even mentioned her. <laughs> anyway, um, but uh, 
anyway, the 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 point is in this chapter, you know, if if in last chapter we see this sort of like pure distilled version of what evil is, in this chapter I think we see as much as anywhere in all of Tolkien's writings, this the 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 delicacy with which Tolkien treats the relationship, like the complex interweaving of good desires and bad desires, the way in which in which evil desires corrupt good people and good intentions and good actions and good powers. Um, you know, we we see in Feanor really almost like step by step a good person going bad. Um, and it, and it is remarkably well done. I think it's really neat. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and and really moving. And this is something I'd, ask, and I'd even sort of thinking back to Joe's comment about his grief at the beginning, you know, something that I would, uh, um, something that I would add there too, that, you know, they, um, not to overlook the fact, many there grieved for the anguish of Feanor, we're told, but his loss was not his alone. So they're not just weeping for him, but they are weeping for him too. That is, they're, they're, they're sad for him. People have compassion for Feanor. Um, and we'll see them weeping for Feanor again in a in a couple of chapters from now, and uh, that's that's Sorry about I think that. that's okay, and and I'm that's a trying, really big deal. Go I'm ahead. Trying to keep baby Han here, uh, my puppy, quiet and in the darn phone. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah, no problem. No problem. Yes, I, I, I was I was actually impressed that uh, your puppy had allowed you to talk for so long without uh, inflicting damage upon you, or maybe you're just bearing it very nobly. Well, he's very small, and I've got him under my arm, so he can't move right now. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Here, I should. I've been. I've Thank been you. sort of prattling on here, and a couple other people I know wanted to weigh in on this. Elizabeth, you wanted to say something before, I think. Ah, uh, yeah. You already touched on it, I think. But um, I just in terms of the persuasiveness of uh, Fionor, I was really struck when I was reading this about how much actual fact or truth was in what he was saying. It was really twisted, of course, but. But in his uh, speech in Tyrion, he, uh, you know, he was talking about how the Valar could not protect them from the enemy, which was which was in fact true, and how they had begrudged the the light to Middle Earth, which was also true, and how they were being kind of dragging their feet in pursuing uh, Melkor, which I'm sure that they had their reasons for, but you know, was also really true, and so it's. You know, when you have a lot of truth behind, or a lot of fact, I guess, behind your argument, it it just makes it really persuasive. So, um, I, it, that gave him a lot of power. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. Um, I think that uh, that's. I mean, and I, I'm I'm glad that you brought up those specific claims because I think all of those are really interesting. I mean, there really is, you know, in the middle of what begins to just sound like a rant, and you know, you're just one is tempted to say, oh, you know, Fanor, you're being totally unfair. The Valar are not are not they've they've not they've blessed you. They've not cursed you. You know, they're doing. But you know, you're right. All of those things that that you mentioned have truth in them. Even the denying the light to Middle Earth. I mean, it's easy for us. You know, we look at Fanor or locking away the Silmarils and denying the sight of the Silmarils to people at festivals and and, uh, and we say, oh, how selfish. Look at Feanor. He's already becoming corrupt, and he is, and that is bad. But, you know, gosh, that kind of strikes home there. The Valar do do something kind of similar. The, 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 the light which they are enjoying and which they've brought the elves over to enjoy, the rest of Middle-earth is not being... Um, the rest of Middle Earth is 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 in a sense being denied it as they you know sort of do their own little you know neighborhood thing over there and and kind of neglect the rest of Middle Earth. So um, anyway, I think that that's um, that's yeah. I'm really glad that you mentioned that. 
Okay, well, let's go on to uh, um, Mike. You had a couple fan or uh, observations you wanted to make. Uh, well, first, quickly, uh, we talked about Feanor and the red helmets that he builds for himself and his people a couple of chapters back. And now we see him drawing his red sword in this chapter, or his people drawing their red swords in the in the firelight. And I, I just like the contrast of the red again, especially against the white ships of the Teleri when he encounters them. I thought that was just a great contrast. Um, but the other thing I wanted to mention about Feanor as a sub-creator and as an example of how certain sub-creators can go wrong was that he doesn't seem to have a lot of empathy for the other sub-creators he encounters in this chapter, Yavane, Yavana Aule, and Olwe. Yavana is a sub-creator. She's lost her creation. He doesn't have to seem to have much empathy for her. Uh, Aule tries to, uh, you know, tries to step in during that first debate and give him a little breathing room and he doesn't seem to recognize that that's going on. And finally, when he encounters uh, Olway and has that argument with Olway, Olway makes the argument, these ships are our sub-creation. I mean, can't you relate to, to, you know, the way we feel about our ships is how you feel about your gems. And again, he doesn't seem to have any empathy for that argument. So here is an example of a sub-creator goes wrong when he no longer has empathy or compassion for his fellow being sub-creations. Yeah, and I mean, I think that that's really in line with what we what we've seen um, with you know uh, sub creators going bad, as we've you know been looking at now for for several weeks. Um, one of the main patterns that we see, which of course Feanor has already been exemplifying, is losing focus and sort of just focusing in on. Um, on his own work that is like you know to 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 love too much the work of his own hands right when when his own love gets just locked in the silmarils and he becomes obsessed with them um and to love them with a greedy love and a selfish love um but i i so i think that what you're pointing to mike this lack of empathy with other sub creators is sort of the natural extension of that um that is, when you cease to be, as a sub-creator, humble in the way that Aule is humble and proves himself to be humble, the way that the Noldor were humble at first in their making of gems and giving them away and strewing them around on the streets and the beaches, and, you know, that was a good thing. That was sort of the right way to be. Um, well, then you not only, you know, when you're just taking delight in the craft and taking delight in the craft of, of others, therefore, as well, that, but when that when that focus begins to be selfish, you don't really care. And I agree. I mean, because it's the argument that Olway makes is not just, hey, we're sub-creators, you can relate to us, but these ships are our Silmarils. You know, he repeats back to to Feanor almost exactly the speech that Feanor just made to the Valar, to the great, you know, to the lesser as well as the greater. There are some things that they can only do once. Well, yeah, um, that's, that's, uh, that's what... That's exactly what always says to him. Um, you know, you might not respect this. You know, these ships might not seem like anything to you compared to your flashy Silmarils, but these are our Silmarils. Right, and and I like the way that Olway lays out maybe three or four arguments in sequence as to why what you're doing is wrong, but that last one is the topper. Yeah, and it's and 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 it seems to be like a, a carefully calculated topper, like. You know, Fanor, I'm going to try to, like, speak your language here, okay? <laughs> like, surely you can, if anyone, if any being on Earth can understand this, you can, right? But he doesn't. Um, and this is why, to me, it's, I think, very revealing 
um, and sort of the culminating atrocity, the burning of the ships. Um, the burning of the ships is one of the things that I I think is one of the most pure. I mean, in some ways, in some ways, I actually find the burning of the ships almost more tragic than the kinslaying. It's it's not like it matters more because it doesn't. Um, and certainly the kinslaying is like the crime that's going to be hanging over the heads of the Noldor. Um, but I was always saddened more by the burning of the ships than I was um, uh, than I was by uh, by the kinslaying. Um, and 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 that I think is is really the moment when you can see Feanor has, has he's 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 gone. He's just gone completely completely over the uh, over the edge. Since you're mentioning the burning of the ships, could you define Fey F E Y Feanor laughing as one Fey at that moment? <sighs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's Fey twice. Or he'll be Fey again in the next chapter, or not the next chapter, but the next time we see him. Um, uh, anyway, he is um, okay. Fey means to be. It's it's like a subset of crazy. Um, it's when you're out of your mind, but particularly when you're out of your mind in a way which is anticipating and or seeking death. Like he is, um, you know, he laughed as one who is Fey. Um, uh, other people who will be Fey uh, in Tolkien, uh, Frodo is going to be called Fey when he is running up the pass of Kirithungal after they escape from Shelob's lair, and he's like shouting, and his voice is echoing around, and he's like, "One, you know, one more bit, Sam, and we'll be free." And Sam is, you know, looking around, and he puts the file away. Frodo is described as Fey there. Um, Pippin uses the word Fey to describe Denethor. Um, when he is appealing to Baragond for help, he says, your master is fey and dangerous. Um, and uh, Eowyn, of course, is also fey um, at, the, in, at the Battle of Pelennor Field. So um, those, are, that's, those are sort of illustrations. It's, it's not just, it's a special kind of out of your mind. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah, so, so that's, what, that's what fey means in that context. Of course, fey also means, can mean relating to fairy or a kind of, uh, or, or, you know, something that is, like, it can be like an adjective form referring to fairies. Um, th this is not that kind of fey. Um, I always want to make sure that there's no, there's no confusion there. Um, okay, um, let's see. Somebody just wanted to contribute to the, uh, um, let's see, Dave, you wanted to talk about the, uh, um, Yovana and Feanor's reaction to their to their creations. I think that's that's sort of relevant here when thinking about you know uh, sub creators gone wrong here. Uh, sure. Um, I I, th I think actually we kind of covered it because um, my point was sort of along the same lines as the the, the thing about Feanor having no empathy um, uh, for other sub creators' work. But but actually, I guess maybe I'll add a little bit to it. Um, I just thought it was very interesting. There's you sort of notice in Actually, a natural parallel between um, <clears throat> Yovana's lamenting the fact that her that the trees are dead, and she sort of says like, "I can't just make new ones. You know, that was sort of a once in a lifetime creation. Um, uh, but if I had the light, I could remake them." Feanor follows right up with, "Yeah, well, my my Silmarils are are once in a lifetime creation too, and sure, I can give them to you, but I'll never be able to. That will be the end of them." Um, and and you know, there's a there's a certain impatience um, that comes out in Tolkas, and I think the reader probably feels. 
calls it two, you know, like, yeah, well, Feanor, come on, man, get on with it. Yvonne is asking nicely. And Ally jumps in and says, like, hey, wait a minute, you know, uh, these things are no no less precious to him than the trees were to Yvonne, so let's, let's back off, which I think is reasonable. I think the difference here is that Yvonne is not asking Feanor to give up the Silmarils so that she can get back her trees, because the trees weren't something that she hoarded and kept to herself, that she valued in and of themselves because she created them. I mean, she did value them as creations of her own hands, but mostly her concern is for everybody else, for the world, for the people and the creatures and all of creation that, that, that sort of enjoyed the light of the trees. Um, and I think where 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 Feanor, Feanor where the, the parallel or analogy between her and Feanor breaks down is that Feanor is not acting out of thought for other people. He's acting, he's turning inward. He's acting out of his own selfish desire that, that in the end, you know, even though he's being asked to do something awful, um, it's not like he's being asked to give up something of his to get something for um, uh, Yavanna. He's being asked to take one for the team to, to for everyone else, to revive the lay of the trees, not so that Yavanna can see her creation restored, but rather so that the world can have light again. And even though it's hard for him in rejecting that, ultimately his d decision to reject it is a selfish one. And that's really sort of where he goes um, uh, where he goes wrong. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think that that's a really good way of putting it. Fanor seems to see almost as if like this is a question of your creation or mine, right? Um, and Yavanna isn't does not seem to be seeing it in those terms. I don't think anybody else is really seeing it in those terms. Um, uh, so yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that that's that that is uh, that is a really fruitful way to think about the contrast between the two of them. Um, I do like the fact. Um, and uh, uh, Mike, I think you had mentioned this before. Just the the, the little bit that we get from Aule there, um, you know, a really good reminder. You know, when Mister Sub Creator Valar steps in, essentially to give a cue, even if if nothing else, to give a cue to us, the readers. Um, somebody uh, just saw was yeah, uh, you know, Matt was uh, was just commenting in the text chat about you know sort of having sympathy for Tolkas's attitude, um, and I can certainly. Sympathize sympathize with Tolkas there. And Dave, you were just saying also that, you know, we might think the same thing. So we get Aule's voice there to say, guys, don't be too quick here. Don't be, and I think that this applies to the other Valor, but also to us as readers too. Um, it's not a no-brainer. This is a big deal um, because these are the greatest work of hands that ever will be made by a child of Iluvatar. So to destroy them, it would be a good act, um, but it would be a very costly good act. Now, I don't think that, um, though I have to say, although granting that, I still think that Fanor is being a little melodramatic. Um, that is, you know, he says, if I, oh, if I, uh, um, if I unlock my jewels, you know, if I break them, I shall break my heart and I shall be slain. Really, Feanor? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe you think that way. But, you know, if he did, sounds unfair to say it would be his own fault, but... But basically, I think that that would be a symptom of his disease. Uh, his heart should not be so locked within his own creations that if he gives them up, he dies. Like, that's, that's, if that's true, that's a bad sign. And I'm not even 100% sure it's true. <laughs> Um, yes, that is an that is an indication of an unhealthy level of attachment to jewels. Yeah, yeah. Either one. That is, either if it's true or if it's not true. Both. Like, if he just thinks that, or if it's actually true. Neither way. Neither way is it a good thing. Um, 
so yeah, no, I think that that's I think that that's important. Um, uh, Matt, you had asked sort of in passing um, in response, I think, to what I said before about Feanor being good and going bad uh, in this chapter, and you had sort of asked in passing, was Feanor ever good? Yes, yes, he was. Now it's true that we never see him doing noble deeds and stuff like that, but I do think it's important to remember he does start off good. He becomes corrupted over time. Um, he has, at the very least, the potential to have been the greatest in every way. Um, and we'll come back to this. We will see this more explicitly um, uh, emphasized uh, a few chapters down the road. Um, but there is no question that he has he has been given by Iluvatar great, great power for good, and he was, to some extent, using it for good. Um, even if, you know, we can see his, like, you know, remember one little, you know, the, the glimmers that we get of that, um, you know, in his, uh, in his junior high science fair project, uh, that is the alphabet, um, uh, the Fanorian alphabet, um, you know, that's, we, we, we can see, even, even just there, a glimpse of what he could have accomplished, you know, the kinds of, if, if he had just remained the kind of maker that he was at the beginning um but uh uh anyway um so yeah so no i, th I think that we you know we have to sort of accept as a paradigm anyway um that he is good or potentially good and and, and we see him becoming increasingly corrupt in this chapter is the rapid decline um now nick you wanted to comment on uh or, or ask a question about fan or not giving up the silmarils um, yeah, I have a technical question on subcreation. Um, when Feanor was asked to give up the Silmarils, he responded with, It may be that I can unlock my jewels, but never again shall I make they alike. And if I must break them, I shall break my heart and I shall be slain. Now, with what I understand from subcreation, when somebody subcreates something, some part of their essence or spirit is is put into that creation, like with Sauron, with the rings. Um, so I'm wondering if this is the... At the end of Lord of the Rings, when Sauron, when, when the ring is destroyed, is Sauron completely annihilated, or is he just diminished in power to such an extent that he's not a warrior? Um, yeah. But also the, with Yavanna, her, her, her creation was the, the trees, and they were destroyed, and yet... It doesn't seem as though that she she's diminished in power at all. Um, so so is it true that if Feanor if if the Silmarils tr truly are destroyed, will Feanor die because of that? I guess. Yeah, that's a really great question because uh, because that is a really neat parallel. Um, it is you know when we're looking at the Silmarils through the rest of of this book. Um, it's going to be hard not to be thinking about the rings of power, at least to some extent. I mean, certainly there are some parallels. Um, now, the power, the, the the power of the Silmarils themselves, is not much like um, the rings of power. But but there does seem to be that connection. I, I mean, I, that is a really interesting parallel between Fanor talking about his own sort of life being tied up with them. But I think there it's different. And here I think is the difference. And I think actually in pointing out that Yavanna's own life essence doesn't seem to be tied to the trees, even though they were her, you know, magnum opus. I think that that actually really points to what the difference really is. Um, and what I'd say about that is basically if it's true, and this is why I don't really think it's true of the Silmarils. Um, it was of the ring of power. Um, what we see there, what we see Sauron doing is evil. 
Um, and it's, I don't want to make, make it sound really simple, like evil magic works one way and good magic works another way, but actually that's kind of true. I, I wouldn't talk about good and, and bad magic, but, um, but in the sense of like what the nature of good is and what the nature of evil is. Um, uh, let's go back to, to Morgoth on Ungoliant here for a second. Um, at the bottom of page 80, we're told, Ungoliant had grown great, and he, le and he less by the power that had gone out from him. Morgoth, um, who is now officially Morgoth, because uh, Feanor has named him that, Morgoth is... Um, Morgoth is lesser now. He has decreased because of the power that he has expended, the power that he put into her to help her with the darkening of Valinor. Um, we don't see that happening with good guys. They don't get diminished in power. Um, and we will, you know, we see also, um, oh, let's see, where is it? Uh, where we talk about Morgoth being, uh, losing forever his power to, um, uh, I'm, I'm, looking, I'm not finding the passage. The passage where, uh, where it mentions Morgoth losing the power to change his shape. Darn it, where is that? thought it was right here. Oh, well. I hate it when I can't find the passage. Let's see, what is that, Chris? Top of page 82? Yeah, yeah, I think, I think... It starts at the bottom of 81, maybe? Yeah, 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 no, I think you're right. For now, more than in the days of Itumno, ere his pride was humbled, his hatred devoured him, and in, the do and in the domination of his servants, and the inspiring of them with lust of evil, he spent his spirit. Nonetheless, his majesty as one of the Valar long remained, though turned to terror, and before his face all save the mightiest sank into a dark pit of fear. Um, so, uh, so, oh, no, the, the business, business about his losing the power to change his shape was in the last chapter, right, because he went unclad and was invisible through Valinor. Anyway, sorry, that, that, uh, Chris, you're right, that was the passage that I was thinking of. Um, so what we see here is that when, 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 when evil puts forth its power to dominate others, it is lessened by that. Like, that's just, that's how it works. Um, and when Sauron puts forth his power to dominate people and makes the One Ring, uh, to facilitate his dominion of others, especially the elves and the other rings of power, he has to put his own self, his own power into that, and that makes him lesser. When good people, when Aule subcreates things, when Yavanna brings things, uh, you know, brings growing things to life and growth, um, they are not lessened by that. They are not decreased. They don't spend their power. They don't become less. They don't fade. Morgoth fades. Um, I mean, he's spent his spirit. And, um, and so, so yes, Sauron is decreased when the ring of power is destroyed. Spoiler, at the end of the Word of the Rings, ring of power is destroyed. Um, when the ring of power is destroyed, Sauron does become much, much, much lesser. Um, and he's not completely annihilated, but he is, but he is, he is made way less. Um, and that, that's basically how he brought about his own destruction. That's Sauron's own little version of Ungoliant at last consuming herself. Again, Ungoliant, the perfect paradigm of evil. How Ungoliant dies is what always happens to evil people. Um, at last, in her uttermost famine, she consumed herself. Um, all evil creatures end that way. And this is not because Tolkien is like simplistically causing all of his evil characters to come to the same destructive end. This is because Tolkien is saying that's what evil is. That's what it means to be evil, is to be ultimately self-destructive. Um, if you are being evil, all you're doing, like, what evil is, is sawing off the branch that you're sitting on. I mean, this is one of the things that Iluvatar is trying to explain to Melkor 
I, I was going to say from day one, it's way before day one, um, you know, right after the great music. Um, so all evil creatures, all evil creatures end up consuming themselves. Ungoliant in that perfectly illustrative way. We will see Morgoth do it. We will see Sauron do it. We will see Gollum do it. I mean, it happens to everybody. So, um, so yeah, I think that that's, uh, that's, that's, that's kind of a big deal. But then now going back, Nick, to the point that you were making about the Silmarils here, um, again, if it were true, it would be bad. Not just bad about Fanor, but bad about the Silmarils too. Um, and I think in as much as he is lessening, if he is lessening himself, it shows that Fanor too is spending his spirit doing things that he shouldn't be doing. Um, you know, that that is, that is an, that is an unnatural application of the spirit in that way um uh, so i think that that parallel is a really suggestive one matt go ahead now we were just on melkor there and i just thought it was so uh brilliantly ironic that he crawls in this big hole in the ground crowns himself and calls himself king of the world (laughs) yes just seems ludicrous yeah yeah especially since in that same place we're told that he never he's never going to leave his cave again um you know, and so, I mean, that's just kind of funny. Um, yeah, I agree. Uh, he's going to be decreasing. He's yeah, going mean, to be he's, he's getting weaker and weaker all the time. And, um, you know, and yet he still has this uh, delusion of grandeur. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. Yes. Uh, I am. I am the ruler of all I survey. Um, you know, OK, OK, it's not much, but I'm all, I'm the ruler of all the stuff that's out there that I'm no longer a part of anymore. Um, yeah, it, there's something deeply deluded. But again, that also is very much, you know, part of the nature of evil in Tolkien as well. Self-delusion, that is. Um, yeah. Yeah. Joe, go ahead. All right, no, I'm just uh, talking about Morgoth for a second. It made me think of uh, if he would have been like the good kings that you see, uh, if he would have actually gone out and like led his army and things, and if he would have been the leader on the field, like you see in Lord of the Rings a lot, that there's like much more success there. Like uh, even in like the battle in Lord of the Rings where you know Sauron comes out and starts fighting, that almost turns the tide, and he gets his finger cut off. But so it just seems like uh, I mean, if he would have been able to step up and do that, things could have been a ton differently. But then I guess that in essence is kind of his cowardice and being evil. I'm not sure how that works, but I just thought that was interesting. Yeah, no, I, I mean, when, when in the end Morgoth is finally overcome, spoiler alert, Morgoth is going to be overcome. Um, anyway, when in the end he's finally overcome, um, we will see he is going to be cowering. I mean, he, he is, he's going to be craven, uh, you know, to use the word that Feanor uses twice, you know, in one of his big speeches. You know, we will not suffer from cravens or the fear of cravens, uh, as kind of ironic, he, uh, he himself. Morgoth himself is going to be uh, is going to be called is going to be called Craven at the end. Um, well, he's going to be called Craven a couple times, um, but uh, he's he he in the end will be will show cowardice. So yeah, I agree. That's uh, that's a big deal. Um, okay, let's see. Uh, Jordan, you had uh, actually we were just, since we just touched on Ungolian. Jordan, you had wanted to to ask an Ungolian question. Yeah, I uh, you actually covered my main question. I was gonna make a oh, okay. piece of the hut reference. Um, so <laughs> basically covered away. Okay, okay. All right, fair enough. Did you want to talk about Fingolfin? And how absolutely amazing and fantastic he is. Yes, I would love to talk about that. Um, well, I am just that. blown Thanks. away time and time again, and it really starts in this chapter with how great Fingolfin is, and uh, I just love him very much. 
Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, to follow up on the Fingolfin discussion we had last week, I think that we can see here uh, evidence of, of what I was trying to point to last time, um, which is although Fingolfin does step up and say, you know, though half-brother in blood, full-brother in heart, I will be where you go, I will follow, that doesn't bind him. When Feanor is you know, starting to do his obviously sketchy things here and, you know, actually saying, hey, let's revolt against the Valar, Fingolfin never once says, well, I said I would go along with you, so I will. He does, but the reason he goes along with him is not because he's agreeing to follow him, just because, not because he was going to be, I was going to say, uh, I'm not going to be your puppy dog, but that would be kind of ironic in light of um, the non uh, meek following along of Chris's puppy dog. But anyway, um, he, he doesn't just, does, does, he doesn't, he's not just tagging along with Feanor at all. He's coming with him in order to oppose him. He's coming with him to help protect the other Noldor from him, from Feanor. Um, so at no point is he just like, well, I guess I have to go along with Feanor. Um, so, I mean, I think that that's, uh, that that's really pretty clear. Fingolfin does very well. He's one of the opponents, the biggest opponents of Feanor all the way through this. Of the other Noldor, that is other than Feanor's own sons, um, you know, I mean, there are several who are kind of with him. I mean, we saw Goadriel and Fingon to some extent and Finrod to some extent also. Um, you know, and then you've got Finarfin and Oradreth who are trying to make everybody be at peace, but Fingolfin is standing up to him. Um, and you'll notice the other one who's with him there primarily is Turgon. Turgon is the is the one who is like shoulder to shoulder with Fingolfin, um, disagreeing with Feanor and opposing him. Uh, and I think that that's, a, that that's an important uh, thing to remember. There's going to be an interesting kind of aberration, or not exactly, I, I don't think it's necessarily an aberration, um, but Turgon's going to end up being considered High King later on, and I think that that's kind of an interesting thing, uh, as from a lineal perspective, that doesn't necessarily make sense. Um, uh, but I think that I, I would just, when we get to that, I would just sort of say, remember this moment. Um, Turgon is one of the ones here showing some real leadership uh, side by side uh, with his awesome daddy Fingolfin, and I think that that's, uh, that, that's a good thing to remember when we get there. Um, but uh, um, anyway, uh, <laughs> I see a raging debate about uh, which is really the more awesome character among several very awesome characters is breaking out in the chat uh, over here. Uh, uh, I'm not going to weigh in on that now. So several of those are related in the, to uh, much later in the book stuff. But um, uh, but yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. Jack, you wanted to talk about the oaths? Yeah, and... Um... Oh, so I guess that's just uh, something I don't under fully understand. Um, you know, the the mechanics of the oath, um, what the literary references, uh, or what Tolkien is thinking when he's saying oath. Um, like, who? I mean, Feanor is making an oath here, but an oath. He's using Manway as a witness, but is, is it an oath to Iluvatar? Is it just an oath to whoever? Um, just how does it all work? And it seems to be taken very seriously in Lord of the Rings, um, and what the consequences are, I don't know, of breaking the oath. I mean, if we see in Lord of the Rings, there seems, I'm not, I don't know the full mechanics, but there seems to be uh, the dead people that uh, the Aragorn eventually releases. I mean, the consequences seem to be severe. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. 
Yeah, no, I agree. Um, and that is something oath-taking and oath-keeping were extremely important uh, in Anglo-Saxon and Norse cultures. And you can see that there's, there's, there's that kind of a flavor to oaths, really, I mean, I think pretty much throughout Tolkien's works. Um, just to give a few illustrations, and you've touched on, uh, on several of them, Jack, I think that are really important. Um, when uh and and we'll sort of work back from these two uh to Feanor's oaths. In the Lord of the Rings we see I would point to Faramir talking to Frodo and saying, you know, I said not if I found it, you know, uh uh you know, by the highway would I would I would I take it? And he said and and, and although I didn't know what I was talking about, I would take that as an oath and keep it. And so I mean the way that Faramir refers to oaths there shows that in his mind, if you've sworn an oath, then I mean it's like it is completely binding. Um and even if you find out later that and even if there are extenuating circumstances, it doesn't matter. So you can see the way that he talks about it, the kind of assumptions he makes about how serious the taking of an oath is. We see an illustration of this also in the skeleton that Aragorn finds in the Paths of the Dead. Um, that is Balder, uh, the uh, who, the son of Brego, who who built the Hall of Meduseld, and who at the feast, this, the the celebration feast of Meduseld, swore an oath that he would walk the Paths of the Dead. Um, I was probably heavily drunk at the time, but had to keep it, and did, and died, um, because he couldn't open the door, because he wasn't the one who could open the door. But anyway, he had to keep his oath, even though he died. Um, now, of course, we have, as Mike is pointing out here in the text chat, we have a couple of... Um, formalized oaths that we see being taken. That is the oath that Denethor administers to Pippin when he takes his oath uh, as to, be, to become a member of the Guard. Um, we have, of course, the oath that Aeorl takes in which Aemir repeats, you know, sort of, you know, uh, reestablishes with Aragorn. Um, uh, and uh, so, I mean, those are some really important things. I would go back, Jack, to the point that you made about um, the, the 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 dead people in the paths of the dead. I mean, their oath is so strong, is so binding to them that not even death um, can interfere with it. Not even death cancels it. In fact, not only does death not cancel it, but the power of the, of that oath actually like transcends death and keeps them, locks their spirits there. Um, until they fulfill their oath, they cannot have peace. Um, so, uh, so anyway, I mean, and those are the ones, the oath breakers, as Aragorn calls them, um, are some of the only people that we see who break oaths. So apparently that was um, a big deal. <laughs> that was obviously a big deal. Now, coming back to Feanor's oath, um, note, this is on page 83, notice that the first thing we're told about it is that it's a terrible oath. So even as oaths go, this is a really terrible one. And I think terrible in two ways. Terrible because of how serious and how solemn it is there are clearly like i guess there there clearly can be degrees of oaths um Faramir saying something off the cuff which he would have kept, held to as an oath is clearly very different from the oath that Pippin takes that is the formal oath that he swears uh different from the formal oath that was sworn the formal oath of allegiance sworn by Eorl which he kept sworn by uh you know the men of the mountains to Isildur which they broke and that's why they're ghosts now um um and this is like very 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 high on the scale of very serious oaths um so, so he swore a terrible oath, and his seven sons take it, swear it with him. Uh, they swore an oath which none shall break, and none should take, by the name even of Iluvatar, 
calling the everlasting dark upon them if they kept it not. And Manway they named in witness, and Varda and the hallowed mountain of Teniquitil, vowing to pursue with vengeance and hatred. Well, it's wait till we get to the terms of, we get to what they actually promise, and, and look at the, the, the setting of it. They swear it by the name of Iluvatar. They call Manway and Varda as witnesses of the, of the oath, um, and the hallowed mountain of Teniquitil. And they call the everlasting dark upon them if they don't keep it. Um, that's huge like these it's you there aren't any stronger terms that they could bind themselves under um they couldn't be more absolutely bound um in any other way so this is like so so even before we get there um even before we get there we have the uh just the, the absolute solemnity of this vow. This is a completely unbreakable vow. Now, what are they promising exactly? What are they swearing? Vowing to pursue with vengeance and hatred, not just vengeance, vengeance and hatred, to the end of the world, Vala, demon, elf, or man as yet unborn, or any creature, great or small, good or evil, that time should bring forth unto the end of days, whoso should hold or take or keep a Silmaril from their possession. See, it was bad enough when he was saying, you know, on the previous page, vengeance calls me hence. Uh, you, you know, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's not very good. Um, and, uh, you know, he's, uh, his, his desire for vengeance is already a little shaky, but this goes way beyond that. Um, this is, the vow is the ultimate expression of Feanor's selfishness. The Silmarils are mine. And think of the language that Morgoth uses about them. I name them unto myself forever. Uh, Fanor's already doing that. I mean, he's doing the same thing that Morgoth is doing, but he's formalized it. I name them unto myself and anybody. This is no longer about taking vengeance against Morgoth. I'm not taking vengeance against Morgoth because he's evil. I swear, good or evil, anybody, for any circumstances, for any reasons, uh, Vala, demon, elf, or man, to the end of time, who tries to keep the, my things away from me, I will pursue them with vengeance and hatred. That's a huge, that's a huge deal. Um, and again, so we have the that selfishness, which was already the first sort of signs of his starting to go bad now he's locked that in and he has locked himself to it um and you know in my mind one of the one of the most painful things um one of the most painful things that we see later on in the story is the couple of of the sons of Feanor who are not complete jerks um who are trapped by this vow and they can't stop themselves and they can't get out of it now um anyway that's uh that's 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 a huge deal. So, so no, this is as, this is as bad as it gets. And I'll want to remember back to this conversation um, when, like, three months from now, we get to uh, we get to the very end of the Quintus Silmarillion because we will see Maglor and Mythros debating this exact point. They're like, "Hey, um, how about we just break the the oath?" Uh, and they're like, uh, "I don't think really that's an option." So anyway, um, I think that it's it's uh, it's very cool. It's very important. Um, let's see. Dusty, you wanted to talk about the, uh, um, the Doom of the Noldor? I was talking about the Doom of the Noldor, even kind of before it happened. It almost seemed preordained. And when the Noldor left and went back to Middle-earth, weren't, I mean, the Valar didn't seem to have anything to do with Middle-earth other than to go over there and beat the crap out of Melkor. Had they been doing anything? Was it not already abandoned? With them putting the Noldor under the ban of the Valar, would it have made a difference anyway? Wait, so would it I'm I'm not sure I'm 100% following you here. Um would what have made any difference? The, the, the Valar doing anything in Middle-earth to begin with. 
When was the last time they went over there? I mean, Middle Earth has been in darkness all this time. The fact that it's now under ban, what were they doing when it wasn't under ban? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I mean, in some ways, that makes the, you know, you sort of think, you know, I think back to uh, to what we were talking about before, and Elizabeth, the point that you were making about um, the truths or half-truths in Feanor's big speech in Tyrion, um, you know, the actions of the Valar make their really kind of undermine their position here uh, in exactly, Dusty, I think some of the ways that you're suggesting. When they say they want to go back, you know, Manway's like, you know, freely you came over, freely you can return, that's fine. Um, uh, you know, go ahead and do that. But, you know, in the Middle Earth as it really is, there has been made a real difference because of the darkness, because the light has been, you know, sort of gathered over in Valinor, um, and they've walled themselves in over there, and, and so much of their time and attention is focused over there. Um, the result is, you know, they're really, you know, on Arda, we really do have the haves and the have-nots, and they really are, the Noldor, that is, in returning to Middle-earth, really are kind of moving to the second-class area uh, to some extent. Um, anyway, I, so I think that, uh, um, I think that that's... I think that that's an important thing, um, and I think that that is interesting. While Go the Noldor are under the ban of Valar, what about the Sindar and all the other innocent elves that are kind of just left on their own to suffer all this time and because of what the Noldor did? Yeah, yeah, and that's going to be really interesting. I mean, I think that that that's going to be um, that's going to be really interesting to look at, and we'll see that uh, both in next week's class and also uh, I think it's the third week from now. That is the 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 chapter that's called of the return of the Noldor. Um, the situation that the Sindar are in. Uh, in the next chapter is going to be a meanwhile in Middle Earth. Here's what's been going on, um, and we'll see. They they're they're in a they're in trouble over there. They're really suffering. Um, and uh, and that's only the part where the Sindar are. I mean, goodness knows how, how things are now way out to the, uh, to the east, um, where there aren't even that many elves anymore because of the migration. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, things, things are getting ugly. And the Noldor returning to that, in some ways, is a good thing. Uh, I mean, it's, it's not hard to see that this is, you know, one can look at it from a certain angle, which sounds almost like, yeah, the Noldor are right and the Valar are wrong there. Um, the Noldor should return. That's a good thing. They are right to rebel against the Valar. You know, it almost like sounds like one could say, no, I don't think you can really maintain that, maintain that argument. The attitude and spirit with which they go is clearly not a good thing, and, I, and not something the story is commending. But, um, but I think that we, we, you know, to some extent, you can actually sort of, um, I think you can actually kind of maintain that. Joe, what, uh, you wanted to ask about something else about Fanor, I think? Yeah, uh... It just seems like uh, what's really driving Feanor seems to kind of change as he progresses throughout this chapter. Like, at first, uh, the vow, I mean, it's mainly about the Silmarils, and, I mean, you know, he curses Morgoth because the Silmarils and his father. That he seems It mostly just seems to be about the Silmarils and recovering them, but then, as he progresses, and he ends up abandoning Fingolfin. You wonder what the reasoning is behind that. It seems like he realizes Fingolfin could be a kind of like a worthy adversary to him in the kingdom. Like, if he's going over there to start his own thing, I mean, it's... Uh, It'd be almost like competition, and then uh, it's just, uh, it seems like it switches from uh, Silmarils being his focus to him doing what he wants over there and being a ruler, and it just seems like that, that kind of goes along with what you guys were talking about earlier, him progressively just becoming worse and worse. I just thought yeah. I just thought it seemed like his focus really shifted from the two different things there. 
Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, we can see from he killed my father and I want vengeance um, and he took my Silmarils and I want vengeance and I want my Silmarils back through, you know, the point where his selfishness becomes sort of more thoroughly crystallized and more thoroughly, uh, you know, he becomes sort of more absorbed in that, not only in the vow, but also if you look at, you know, the very end of his speech, um, that just in the paragraph immediately before the vow on page 83, um, I, I you know, but when we have conquered and have regained the Silmarils, then we and we alone shall be lords of the unsullied light and masters of the bliss and beauty of Arda. Now, who do we sound like? <laughs> who have we heard say this exactly, almost exactly that speech? Anybody? <laughs> yes, Mike's exactly right. This, that's, that's exactly what Melkor wanted. He wanted to possess the light for himself alone, way back in the Ainulintale. That was exactly what motivated him. And he wanted to be master of the bliss and beauty of Arda when he saw it. So, I mean, that's... He is... You know, and of course, the, the the text points out the irony of his, you know, great anti-Morgoth speech. And he's like ventriloquizing Morgoth all the way through. But here, Feanor, you know, we can see his... Um, his selfishness, you know, how how Morgoth-like it has made him there. But I agree with Joe, it gets kind of worse than that. I mean, he, he goes downhill even from there. And here, I, th I think, is where we can see sort of that parallel to Morgoth spend, uh, spending his spirit. Um, that he, he really goes down... Remember when they leave, he brings everybody with him. He wants to bring all of the Noldor with him that are possible, even Fingolfin and Finarfin's followers, even though they're uppity and he doesn't really trust them. But he wants them all with him. And then when he comes to the Teleri, he's like, hmm, I need ships. Oh, and anyway, um, my strength for war against Morgoth will be increased if I can also bring the Teleri with me. Okay, great. So that'll be, that'll be good. And then, of course, he's like, and also it will decrease the bliss of Valinor. Yeah, so then I can, like, you know, kick that in the Valar's face. That's a good plus, too. So that shows, obviously, that's a more corrupt desire than the desire to increase his strength to fight against uh, Morgoth. But then when he's abandoning Fingolfin at the end, uh, he is flying in the face... You know, so here we have, that is, his desire to bring the Teleri with him so that he, he A, will be able to get over to Middle-earth more conveniently, and B, have more people with him to fight against Morgoth when he gets there. He's thinking in, in very kind of Machiavellian terms here, but at least he's still thinking kind of pragmatically and, 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 and sort of sensibly in Machiavellian terms. Um, by the time he is sort of maniacally cackling and setting fire to ships on page 90, um, you know, when he is described as Fae, uh, he's, he's even turning his back on his previously internally articulated Machiavellian uh, uh, plotting. Uh, you know, what I have left behind, I count now no loss. Needless baggage on the road, it has proved. It, what do you mean, it has proved? You haven't done anything except try to travel, uh, and they've been following you along on the shore. Um, so again, nothing has been proved yet. Um, useless baggage? It's, it's like more than half your army, stupid. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, he's not thinking even... Before he was thinking immorally, but still rationally, and it seems like he's not even really rational anymore. Um, so, yeah, I mean, here we can see a real a real decline, I think. Um, Laura, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to throw in kind of a good word for Feanor. Oh, good. Uh, since he's, he's getting so little good press. Uh, I just wanted to mention, and and I guess I hadn't noticed this before when I when I read this before, but um, 
that the line about his father, how he loved his father more than anything, including the Silmarils. I thought yeah. that's at least a glimmer of something hopeful for Feanor, that he's not entirely bad. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that the um, that's important to remember. Um, and I think also an important thing sort of to use as context um, when we are talking about the vow and all those other things we see, you know, he was not, he was not, not only was he not always consumed by selfishness, even recently he wasn't completely consumed by selfishness. His desire to take vengeance against Morgoth is not a completely corrupt uh, desire. And, you know, his, his actions are in part motivated um, by a misguided reaction to his really genuine love for his father. Um, so, so that I think, I mean, even, even on the, you know, to, to think about it in, in terms of honor and I mean, he, he kind of appeals to this, you know, you have all lost your king, right? You know, are we really going to sit here when, when, when this guy, Morgoth, you know, if you want to call him guy, this guy has come in and he has killed our king and run off. We're just going to, we're just going to take it. Like, that's okay with us. You know, no, we're going to, we're going to go and we're going to make war on this guy who has declared war on us by killing our king and killing my father. Um, you know, and there's something, there's definitely something, something sympathetic there. Certainly if we're looking, uh, if we're looking at things to, uh, to not be wholly disapproving about Feanor, uh, with, I think that's, you know, potentially one. Go ahead, Laura. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to mention too is, um, you know, when Mondo says, uh, not the first, his, his cryptic <laughs> statement, I always think, why didn't they ask him what that meant? You know, or are they just so used to Mandos making these cryptic remarks over in the corner or wherever that they just don't pay any attention to him and they say, oh, oh, that's just Mandos talking again. So, But, you know, I just wonder why didn't anyone turn around and say, what do you mean, not the first? Yeah, yeah. No, that is one of my favorite Mandos moments. I mean, I absolutely just, not the first, Mandos pipes up, uh, <laughs> you know, from the corner, as you say. Um, you know, yeah, you, you sort of get the sense that the other fellow are like, you know, this is why we don't usually invite him to parties. Um, but, uh, um, but yeah, but they did not understand his word. And again, there was silence. Um, yeah, yeah, no, nobody asks for clarification. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Does I'm not sure how much good it would have done. Mandos but... for clarification ever? He remember he pr he pronounces his dooms only at the bidding of Manway, um, and that is what we will generally say. Hey, he will he will kind of sometimes unhelpfully interject uh, like this, but he rarely gives speeches, and we don't see a lot of people saying. I mean, again, you'd think like logically, you'd think, okay, um, we're in difficulties. We're not quite sure what to do. Hey, how about we ask the guy who's never forgotten anything and who knows most of the future? Can we bring him in here and give, get his advice on this? Um, uh, no, but people just generally <laughs> don't don't do that, and I can, I think that that's just part of who of who Mandos is. Um, it seems to be to go along with his job um, that he is silent most of the time, um, and that when he does speak, he often speaks. I'm not sure if cryptic is quite right. He's not cryptic in the same way that. Um, you know, like the Oracle of Delphi is cryptic. I'm doing Greek mythology with my uh, with my students, so I'm uh, I, I you know kind of got that on on my mind. That is, it's it's not like what he says is like oh you can interpret it in multiple ways, and maybe you know people will interpret it wrong. It's it's not quite it's not that that kind of cryptic. Um, but uh, 
but yeah, certainly his kind of unwanted and unexplained interjection here certainly does kind of uh, kind of seem seem odd. I do agree. Uh, you know, Jordan has just said in the text that uh, um, he doesn't think that he would give a clarification even if if asked, and I I, I think that's right. Um, he if his job were to go around pontificating about everything everything that was going to happen in the future and everything that was going on that nobody else knew about, well, he'd be doing that all the time. Um, but he doesn't. Um, and that I think is, is, I mean, that's just part of, that's just part of who he is. Mike, go ahead. The other thing that Mandos is doing there is sort of rebutting Feanor, who's trying to predict the future. And he's interjecting and saying, no, that's not your job to predict the future. And he sort of throws in his two cents to sort of, I guess, put Feanor in his place. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and I you know that's actually really interesting um, putting Feanor in his place because it's true the one effect that his declaration there has nobody understands it at the time but the one effect that it has is to kind of puncture Feanor's melodramatic moment there right and I shall be slain first of all the Eldar in a month not the first actually right. Um, and, and yeah, you know, if there's one thing that he's communicating clearly, it is, Feanor, you're not really as big a deal as you think you are. You know, um, you have, you are already having delusions of grandeur right here. You are already making yourself out like you're the entire protagonist of this whole story. You know, like the darkening of Alinor is really, at the end of the day, all about you. And it isn't, actually. Um, and of course, the rebuke is the more, you know, in retrospect, once we find out what it does mean and what Mandos is thinking about, that is, the death of Feanor's own father, we see the kind of horrible irony it has for Feanor in that moment. Um, because there is one thing, it seems, that could get Feanor out of his shell and stop him thinking about himself, and that's his father. And that's, of course, what has happened, and that's the direction that Mandos' statement there is pointing. Um, so, yeah, I think, uh, I think that that's a really good... I think that that's a really good reminder, uh, Mike. I think that that's I think that's very important. Um, oh, let's see, uh, Joe, go ahead. All right, um, jumping ahead, uh, kind of a little bit. Um, it says that you know the wind seemed to answer Feanor's call, and uh, when he was thinking about leaving uh, Fingolfin, I was wondering, um, could that have been Iluvatar possibly any Feanor in his free will, since he seems to act randomly throughout the book, or um, could it have been the oath uh, kind of like starting off, starting to take its effect and shaping kind of what happens um you know since chance doesn't really seem to be chance throughout the story uh, i wasn't really sure uh, what to think there yeah you know uh that's that's really interesting um because that is a really fascinating moment in the moment when Feanor is about to do you know like that sort of is about to reach the bottom lung the, the bottom lung the bo- the bottom rung of uh, the of you know sort of the 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 ladder of his decline here um the wind suddenly rises as if you know and it's like it's as, as if nature itself were obeying fanor um now it's not but uh um it's not obeying him you know he is not in fact uh commanding the winds um and I guess there are two things I think that we can see there in that expression. One is, this is almost like we're seeing this from Feanor's standpoint, you know, that a wind comes up which is able to waft the ships over to the other side. And Feanor, from his perspective now, he's gone past just thinking that he is the protagonist and thinking this is all about him. And now it's a, he, he's almost genuinely delusional. And again, I think we can see, we can see this in him being called Fey and everything. He's really, you know, he's not, he's not entirely, Feanor's not 
not entirely with us anymore, it seems. Uh, and, you know, here he seems to be genuinely delusional. Like, I can, you know, ah, see, I am commanding the wind. I, 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 desi- I, I made this choice, and and look, now, you know, uh, all of, you know, the entire world is conforming itself to my will. Um, so that, I think, is one thing that we can see. But, but... Um, at the same time, we know he's not commanding the wind. Who is commanding the wind? Well, we've got two candidates for this, right? One is Manwe, of course. Manwe is, you know, Manwe Sulamo, Lord of the Breath of Arda. The winds are Manwe's. Um, so I think that one way in which we can see this is the wind that rises up, which, as I said, wind is a Manwe thing, could be, in a sense an outward manifestation of the message that Manwe has already sent to Feanor. That is, Manwe has said, if you want to go, you can go. I won't stop you. You, can, you know, and, you know, and so that this is, this is Manwe saying, you want to cross over to Middle-earth? Here, here you go. I'm not stopping you. Look at me not stopping you, right? Um, here I am, uh, a, a wind is rising up just as you're turning to go, you know, Look at how little impediment I have put in your way. I'm even, it's like, I'm even wishing you good day, Feanor, and off you go. Um, But there's something kind of, I was going to say horrible. It's not exactly horrible. I don't think horrible on Manway's part. But of course, like, this is the moment of his abandonment of Fingolfin and Fingolfin's people. Um, And I don't think that we have to, that we're supposed to understand that either Manway or Luvatar are supportive of Feanor's decision here or affirming his decision. Um, uh, but uh, anyway, yeah. Uh, Joe, did you want to add something to that too? Um, yeah, I was just going to ask you, so are you kind of rolling out the oath? Oh, one more thing I wanted to say before that, um, you know, uh, where Mandos kind of like says the curse or like the final band of the Valar. Um, I think someone needs to read some of that or you re- could read some of that. Cause that is really powerful. What, uh, what kind of, they see Mandos up there and what he says there, it just, yeah. it really kind of outlines everything. And then, um, what relates to the question is, so are, are you kind of rolling out possibly the oath finally taking effect? Cause that shapes so much history. So, I mean, are you kind yeah. of rolling out the oath and saying it might've been, uh, it may have just been someone of higher power. I think that there is say, okay. It's complicated because on the one hand, I mean, the oath is certainly in effect and we're told that um, the oath is in a sense going to bring things to pass. It's going to, it's, it's going to influence things, but I think not necessarily like that and not necessarily that directly. Like it, it's not going to create a situation where it makes, it makes the wind blow, um, but it is going to weigh upon them. I mean, the, the, the curse of the Noldor seems, the way that it's talked about, um, and we'll come back to this in a couple moments uh, in the chapters to come, the curse of the Noldor seems to work on them almost like original sin. That is, it, they, are, um, they are like morally undermined by it. The things that they try to do go wrong. Um, well, I, 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 just, I mean, Joe, I'll take your suggestion. Let's... Uh, uh, um, Let's read the doom of the Valar here. Um, page 88. Tears unnumbered ye shall shed. Uh, notice, of course, uh, already the memory of this that's going to arise later on when we get to the near Nith Arnoidiad, the battle which is just called un- Unnumbered Tears. Uh, that connection, not an accident. Tears unnumbered ye shall shed, and the Valar will fence Valinor against you and shut you out, so that not even the echo of your lamentation shall pass over the mountains. Ouch. 
on the house of Theonor the wrath of the Valar lieth from the west unto the uttermost east, and upon all that will follow them it shall be laid also. Their oath shall drive them, and yet betray them, and ever snatch away the very treasures that they have sworn to pursue. To evil end shall all things turn that they begin well, and by treason of kin unto kin, and the fear of treason, shall this come to pass. The dispossessed shall they be for ever." Ye have spilled the blood of your kindred unrighteously, and have stained the land of Ammon. For blood ye shall render blood, and beyond Ammon ye shall dwell in death's shadow. For though Eru appointed you to die not in Ea, and no sickness may assail you, yet slain ye may be, and slain ye shall be, by weapon, and by torment, and by grief, and your houseless spirits shall come then to Mandos. There long shall ye abide and yearn for your bodies, and find little pity, though all whom ye have slain should entreat for you, and those that endure in Middle-earth and come not to Mandos shall grow weary of the world as with a great burden, and shall wane, and become as shadows of regret before the younger race that cometh after. The Valar have spoken." Wow, that is so good. That is just incredible. Things that I would do a, a, a sort of a quick emphasis of. I mean, just the things that I that really jump out at me as 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 so important here. First, the connection that that Mandos establishes here between the kinslaying and the uh, uh, the turning uh, by treason of kin unto kin, the turning of things to evil by treason of kin unto kin, and the you know and the fear of treason shall this come to pass. Um, here he is saying, um, and uh, yeah, Manos is not necessarily saying, I am going to act upon you in such a way that I am going to make you tre treacherous to each other, and I am going to inspire in you fear of treachery. But rather, this is a sense in which what he's doing is saying, this is the consequence of what you've done. That is now inevitable. It's now absolutely inescapable that you would be fearful of treachery now. Um, that's, what, that's what it means for you to do what you've done. Um, because you have slain your kin, now no one, none of you will trust each other. Because you all know, you all know what you would do, what you have done, and might do it and might do again. So, um, so that's one thing that I think is really, is really important. Um, uh, the second thing that I would point out is that the weariness of the world, as with a great burden, the elves fade, but the fading is not necessarily inescapable. The fading is not, um, this is a part of the consequence of the curse of the Noldor. Um, their fading is different. Um, so I think that that's, that's, uh, that's a big deal. Um, yeah, Matt, go ahead. Uh, yes, uh, that was just, uh, I had uh, kind of marked that as maybe a turning point for the elves. I mean, it's all been laid out for them, the consequences of their actions, um, and they still have a long way to go. They're still having to learn. They've gotten this pronouncement, but they'll still have to learn through experiences what it really means. But I, I think when, um, for me especially, um, and maybe others, uh, when you come to the Silmarillion from the Lord of the Rings, it's kind of uh, it's hard to uh, figure out the elves at the start because in, in the Lord of the Rings, the, the elves seem almost like supermen and superwomen. They, they seem to be near perfect. They seem to be almost omniscient and to be so wise and uh, very composed posed and serene all the time 
Right. And um, as we go through the Silmarillion, we, we see the elves struggling with vanity and pride and betrayal and anguish and tragedy. And, um, and the events recounted in, in the Silmarillion kind of reveal how the elves became so wise because they lived through all the stuff. And uh, these bitter experiences shaped them, and they molded them into people who have uh, learned from their collective mistakes. So, I mean, they still have got a way to go, but this, I think, is a turning point for them um, in their history. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, and here I would I would emphasize two things. One is remember what Iluvatar said back in the music of the Ainur. Um, you cannot, when you do evil, you cannot prevent good from happening. In fact, your evil choices, just as Melkor is before him, all of, all of Feanor's choices and all of the bad choices that are going to be made by the people who have followed Feanor and all of the terrible consequences of the curse of the Noldor are in the end going to going to bring about things that are more glorious than they could possibly have imagined. So, and I think that, Matt, that's exactly one of the things that we can see there. That's one of the consequences um, we can see in the elves themselves. They are going to be, in a sense you know, in a sense, better, in a sense, improved um, by what happens. Um, they will gain, they will gain wisdom. And that's something, that's, that's something that we see talked about even within the Lord of the Rings. The second thing I would mention briefly is that I think one of the reason for the differences that we see in the elves in the Silmarillion and the elves in the Lord of the Rings also, another thing that contributes to it is the fact that um, he, this is an elf story. This is an elf book that is, this is a story about elves by elves, uh, the Lord of the Rings is a story which involve el involves elves, but which is written by hobbits and from the hobbit perspective. So the elves look very different from where the hobbits are standing, not not just because they're so much closer to the ground, but, you know, the elves seem greater and incalculable to them. Um, whereas, of course, from the perspective of the songs that the elves are singing about their own history, uh, things look a little bit different. But um, uh, but anyway, that's... that's uh, that's sort of, sort of an aside, but I don't want to undermine uh, Matt the really important point that you make about there is uh, you know to 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 use the phrase that that Chris has typed out here the wisdom that the elves gain is hard bought and we and you know and they do um, they do they pay for it um, but they do get what they paid for which is which is wisdom and understanding um, far greater and compassion uh, again remember Nienna remember what happens uh, when you suffer what remember what grief can bring um, wisdom and hope and healing um, and I think that we do see that eventually but um, Mike go ahead pick up a little bit more on the uh, Mandos's judgment I I like the contrast to the first encounter between Feanor and the herald of Manway where the herald arrives and Feanor at that point is basically able to completely shout him down and that's sort of the for me that's that's Manway's sort of warning shot across the bow and it doesn't go well but then he brings out the big guns he brings out Mandos and Mandos utters his judgment and then Feanor is not going to shout down Mandos he's he's left sort of muttering to his own people about, okay, well, he said what he said, but this is the way it's still going to go down. But I love the fact that this ongoing conflict he's having with Mandos, in terms of who can predict the future, who can make the future, Feanor still gets the last word, and when he mutters to his people and his followers, we're going to do some deeds here that people will be talking about to the end of time. 
Yeah, yeah. Which, of course, turns out to be true. Um, and again, we'll come back to that again. This turns out to be not only true and not a petty thing. It's also, this also is an important point. And to kind of to extend uh, the point that Matt was making and that Chris was adding on to, um, it's not just their own wisdom that's going to be gained from this. It is also the wisdom of everyone who hears the stories about these times, the wisdom of all of us as we sit around reading it. Um, we gain from it. Um, good can come for others as well as for themselves. Um, so, uh, so, th th uh, so I, I think you know we shouldn't just overlook what Fanor says there. But I agree with you. This is this is certainly not him having the last word, as he does with uh, um, with Manway's messenger uh, in Tyrion. Um, uh, but yeah, good. That's that's uh, that's really important, Mike. I, I think I, I should give you another chance. You wanted to do style time again, right? I think it's I, th I I I think it's time. And now we have style time with Mike Thurway. Go ahead. I'd I'd love to do style time. Okay, so. I was rereading the chapter, and I started counting the number of times the word bitter appeared. And it turns out that I counted by hand ten times that the word bitter appears. Characters are described as bitter. Paths are described as bitter. Uh, battles are described as bitter. And then, as I was thinking about it, bitter, I think, has some association with, you know, the, the term biting or bite. And then it got me thinking about the fact that much of the action takes place around this ice that's described as teeth that has the, you know, the grinding teeth of the ice. So that's also biting and bitter. And so I want to discuss when Tolkien uses the phrase bitter or bitterness 10 times, and he describes a landscape as a grinding set of teeth that, you know, bites people and bites characters. What is he doing there? What kind of bitterness is he talking about? What does that word mean? I love that observation. I hadn't noticed that. You know, and it's interesting. If you had just asked, um, you know, like, what interesting word is used, like, you know, ten times in these different ways, I'm not sure I would have... Um, I'm not sure that I would have guessed bitter. I remember we talked about bitter uh, in the previous, you know, bitterly uh, uh, did Martin regret the, the teaching, you know, to fan or the skill of, uh, of, of, of metalcraft. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, bitter didn't jump out at me, but you're right. I mean, once you bring it up, you're right. And it is interesting, the number of different contexts that it's used, you know, the lies of Melkor, thou shalt unlearn in bitterness. Um, and as you say, the battle with the the battle with the Teleri is bitter. Um, yeah, that's 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 really fascinating, and and it's that does seem to be, in a sense, an appropriate kind of theme for this chapter, um, because we see, of course, it's Feanor's bitterness, which uh, you know we see the bitterness that he is expressing in his. Uh, um, in his initial moves, like, you know, sort of as he is going bad in the first place and his declaration of vengeance on on Morgoth. But of course, also the, the greatest bitterness, I think, is, is the one the, the, the one that I just read, uh, the lies of Melkor, thou shalt unlearn in bitterness. Um, the results of all of this are going to be bitter and the Noldor are going to be bitterly regretting the choices that they're making right now. Um, and, yeah, I mean, and I was also point out Nienna, Nienna mourning for the bitterness of the world at the top of the chapter. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, as, the, as, a kind of, uh, as a kind of frame of the whole thing. Um, yeah, I mean, sure, I, lo yeah. I love the, the framing of, you know, Nienna mourning for the bitterness, and at the conclusion of the, of the chapter, they're in this icy landscape that basically is a biting landscape as well. So I thought that was terrific. 
Yeah, it is very cool. But no, yeah, the the mourning for the bitterness of the world. Yeah, oh, that is excellent. Yeah, because I mean that's, and this is one of the things that one of the things that we can see. Remember, the discord of Melkor is worked into the fabric of creation. Remember, Nienna has been, you know, the lamentation was part of the song. You know, I mean, it's there. Um, this is not, you know, so, you know, it's, it's, you know, and perhaps actually it's sort of another example of a little bit, maybe Manway kind of being a little bit out of touch with things, you know, with the whole, like you have stained Amon and you have, you have brought suffering to Amon. Well, yeah, but suffering, that's not new. You know, that's not, yeah. I mean, it's, I'm not saying it was great. You know, those of it was like acceptable what Feanor did, but but you know the the world is a bitter but this is this is the way the world is nienna knows this right this is what she's weeping for she's weeping that this is the way the world is but it is the way the world is um and as they're so you know when when they are going to be looking back at this in bitterness and as they're going to be experiencing you know this sort of bitter suffering through the rest of their days um in middle earth you know it's this is this is also this is part of the story this is this is the way things are not just as a result of Melkor's lies that he has been sowing there in Amon but that itself was only a microcosm of what he's already done in the music um so uh so yeah i think that that's uh i think that that's that's a really cool thing um let's see uh we're starting to run short on time uh let me see if uh let's see a couple things i want to um dusty you wanted to talk about Olway? i don't think we went there it wasn't so much well um Olway called upon Oesi, but he came not for it was not permitted by the valar that the by the norwood should be hindered by force but unan wept for the mariners of the Tellari and the sea rose in wrath against the players. Why was she able to do something and nobody else was? Yeah, that that is a good question. And uh, but I mean, I like the the way that it's phrased. Ase is prevented, and Ase, remember, Ase is the tempestuous one. I mean, you think if anyone is going to say, you know, screw what the Valar says, I'm going after Feanor, and I don't care. You'd think it would be Ase, right? I mean, he's like, even he, he's he's like he's worse than Tolkas. He delights in violence in a, in a, in, a, in a different way than Tolkas does. I mean, Tolkas at least is usually having fun with it. Um, but uh, but anyway, it Ase holds himself back, but it's Uinen, and but there it's not framed, it's it's not phrased as if it's an act of defiance. You know, Ase doesn't do it, but Uinen she doesn't care, and she she goes ahead and does anyway. She mourns for the Teleri, and her mourning is the tempest of the sea. I mean, it's like the, this, it's that you know she doesn't weep for them, and then while she's weeping for them, she also sends a storm. Um, you know the two of them the two of them are essentially are essentially the same i want to make sure that i'm getting the phrasing right so i'm quoting from memory here and when and talking about this but uh let's see where's the page 87 page 87 great thank you thank you yes um yes but uinen wept for the mariners of the teleri and the sea rose in wrath against the slayers and the sea rose in wrath like the sea is doing it itself like this is the natural consequence of uinen's tears um so I, you know, it's, 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 
Yeah, not an act of defiance. It is like, again, you know, I'm almost tempted to make a link back to, or I guess forward one page, uh, to the Doom of Mandos. Just as Mandos is saying, look, the consequence of your treachery against your kin in slaying the Teleri is that now <clears throat> no one's going to be able to trust anybody. Now treachery is going to be, now it's like the way of life among you guys. Congratulations. Here, you know, this is the consequence. Like when when she is, we, you know, the, the, the sea is mourning for what they have done. Like they have have they have the, the sea is going to rise up against them they can't expect that they're going to be able to be at peace with the sea that they can just walk that well, i was to say walk off with the ships that's just not quite right is it uh that you know the, that they can just sail away in the ships um it doesn't work that way because they have created enmity um created enmity like with the sea itself and you know the sea itself responding to her not to her anger not to her vengefulness but to her grief you know that's just the expression of the grief uh, you know this horrible thing you have done this horrible thing you have done this sad thing um and it is going to immediately take its toll on you um and that and you can't escape that nobody can um so yeah i think that that's uh um yeah 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 i i i think that's what we can see there not that uinen gets away with something that Ase doesn't um one last thing that i would want to leave actually just right there in that same paragraph the nol delante i would just point this out the the first of all i love it whenever in the silmarillion we're told about a much much longer poem uh that's out there that we don't have right now um you know which tells the whole real story of this you know so if you really wanted to hear the whole story of the kinslaying you know uh get somebody to sing the the no for you at some point um but the two things that I think are really important there is first what that means, the fall of the Noldor. Um, the song which tells the kinslaying, the story of the kinslaying, is the song that is called the fall of the Noldor. Um, and who wrote it? Maglor, son of Feanor, wrote the fall of the Noldor. Um, so that I think is uh, um, that I think is is an excellent expression and we can see maglor son of feanor his own recognition uh yeah this is not this was this was when the noldor went down um you know this is this is the collapse of the noldor here um and the kinslaying is is the central the central piece of that okay any other quick things before we go yeah laura go ahead i just wanted to say that my favorite word in the entire Sil silmarillion is helcaraxa Mm-hmm. It is a wonderful name. Um, it's almost onomatopoetic, you know, the Helcaraxa, you know, the, the, with the grinding ice. It sounds like grinding ice, doesn't it? You almost hear, like, the icebergs, you know, churning together. Uh, uh, yeah, it, it's, uh, yeah, it is a fantastic word. Um, uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of Valakirka as well, but Helcaraxa is pretty hard to top, I agree. Um Okay, any uh, any 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 final any final questions? <laughs> okay. Thanks everybody. Uh we will uh um we, yes, the Valar have spoken. Off we go. Um see you all next week for a chapter which is not quite so long as this week's chapter. So Chris, you don't have to start reading quite so early next week. Um as we will uh, go back to Mid-Earth. Thanks everybody. Good night. Thus concludes of the flight of the Noldor. Join us next time when we return to Middle-earth and discuss of the Sindar. This is Jordan Brown, and for myself and the rest of the Silmarillionaires, thanks for listening, and Godspeed.